Welcome back to the another episode of the Hip Hop Social Worker Podcast. I am your host, Christopher Scott, and tonight I have the privilege to connect with uh, um, Ashley McGirt from Seattle. Uh, you know, she's on her hustle. She's on her social work hustle, just like everyone else uh, who listens to this podcast. And uh, she can go ahead and um, tell you more about herself and her background and why she chose this lovely field of social work. So uh, go ahead, Ashley. Let them know something. Mm-hmm. So yeah, my name's Ashley. I am the millennial therapist out here in Seattle. And how I got into social work is pretty interesting. I actually wanted to be a lawyer, but my grandmother passed and I suffered, ended up suffering from major depression and there were no black counselors available to me. So I ended up seeing a white woman and she was not culturally competent at all. She didn't understand the role of grandmother in black families or really understand the grief that I was going through. And because of my experience with that and having to kind of educate a white woman about black life and all of these different things when I really should be grieving, I was thinking there's gotta be other black people who are grieving and just experiencing depression and what I'm going through. And they shouldn't have to spend their session explaining their culture. They should spend their session actually getting some healing. So that's when I did a complete 360, like, okay, well, I'm not going to go to law school. I'm actually going to study psychology. So I ended up getting my bachelor's in psychology and I was applying for a master's in psychology. And my advisor, she talked me into social work. I didn't know anything about social work. All I thought was, you know, CPS, which is the yeah. stereotypical thought that most people have about social work. You know, you're going to take my kids, you work for mm-hmm. CPS. Um, but she's like, no, there's more job opportunity for you. And when I was explaining to her um, some of the things that I wanted to do and some of my interests, she's like, I feel like you'll find social work more valuable. And um, she said that the path would also be just a different path going toward a master's in psychology. So that's how I got into social work, kind of my long roundabout story. Nice. Yeah. uh, You're the second person who I've uh, talked to and who's going to start out being a lawyer and ended up being a social worker. So. You know, that's kind of a, it's kind of interesting, you know, but that is, I mean, that's kind of, you know, how I started this path too. Uh, you know, I was working at a place and didn't see any black therapists. So I was kind of like, maybe it's, you know, you, you know, like maybe that's a lane for me to, you know, step into, you know, to be support for our people, you know? Yes, we're so needed. And I still work with the law. There's actually an attorney I work closely with. And anytime her clients um, who are booked and getting ready to be incarcerated, which is rare because she's a really great attorney. But if they are getting ready to be incarcerated, I'll work with them just to kind of prep them for what's that what that's like, especially getting ready to turn yourself in and go to prison or jail, whatever the case may be. And mm. then I also do assessments with the county to really just help them humanize the clients before sentencing. Yeah, that's fresh. Yes. So um, what, so like social work is a vast field, you know, uh, what career path are you taking in social work? So I wear many, many hats with my social work hat. So I have a full-time position at doing hospice therapy where I provide emotional support, supportive socialization, to patients who are dying. They've been diagnosed with a terminal illness and are projected to live six months or less. Um, So that's my main role. And then I also own my own business where I see clients a few days out of the week in the evenings. And I'm working primarily with 
um, black millennials. I do have clients who aren't black and I do have clients who aren't millennials. The majority of them are coming to me with racial trauma, trauma, anxiety, and depression. And I also do a lot of speaking. Um, so those are some of the roles that I have um, with my social work and also public advocacy. So I work closely with like the NAACP and the Urban League and other organizations. And I do a lot in my community to really show up. I just went to like the King County Legislative Forum mm -hmm. and advocated um, for mental health resources and funding. Um, so I'm always showing up. That's part of my social work hat, working on policies and things like that from the macro scale. Okay. Okay. So was, um, was the lack of black faces, like, like your main influence to like, that you incorporate in your practice or is there other things that kind of influence, you know, how you move about in your practice? Um, the lack of black face is the main reason for my practice. It's the reason I'm in this field. So I'm always going to focus primarily on minority mental health, specifically black mental health, because I'm a black person. So I understand black people personally, because I am one, um, but I do work with all kinds of minorities. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that's, that's the premise. And a lot of people know me because I did train under Dr. Joy DeGruy and just really have a strong emphasis on healing others from racism, racial trauma. Because, I mean, racism is not going to end tomorrow, but there are coping skills and tools that we can utilize and implement into our day-to-day -day lives so that we aren't stressed out. Yeah, that's, that's facts. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, so how do you gauge, like, success in your practice? Really is direct client feedback. Um, my clients tell me straight up, like, this has been helpful for me. I love that we did this X, Y, and Z, or they're telling me about the improvements that they've had in their lives. Also direct referrals, which are coming from clients. So I know I have to be doing something right. If my clients are referring their family members, uh, other community members to me. So really just direct client feedback is how I really gauge my success. And also I look at the community impact too because I know that what I'm doing is bigger than me. So on a collective scale, I'm like, okay, how, how did I help my community? I showed up at this legislative forum and I was able to tell my story here, this, that, and the third. I went to one about gun violence, um, which is something that's been big in my own personal life, just mm -hmm. having friends and family be victims of gun violence. So that's something that I was able to speak out on and see direct policy changes associated with that. So that's, what I would see as a success in my practice. Yeah. Okay. Yes. So, um, you mentioned racial trauma, you know, and we all know, or some of us, you know, understand the link between mental health and how, um, how racism plays a part of that. You know, could you mind like explaining like how you kind of go about, um, helping people heal from racial trauma and like maybe like some examples of what racial trauma is? Yeah. Um, so racial trauma is really just the stress from oppressive systems, those microaggressions. I work with a lot of expats because Seattle here, we have a lot of tech companies. So there's so many people of color who are moving here and just aren't used to um, the Pacific Northwest environment and what that looks like for them being a minority in this environment. So they are coming from places like Chicago, St. Louis, where there's more of a presence of African-Americans or 
whatever um, race they may be. So then they come here and they're the only black face. And then they're meant to either um, represent all black people, have all these questions and not um, treated fairly when they may come into like positions of leadership. Mm -hmm. So what I do is I really help them manage their stress and their anxiety. And now sometimes people, they have this mistaken belief that I'm helping them adjust to racism yeah. or adjust to oppressive systems. And that's not what's going on at all up in here. Mm-hmm. So if there's things that are like, okay, we need to go to HR or we need to, you know, file a lawsuit. We need to document X, Y, and Z because this is inappropriate. So we take those steps and I walk them through it um, and just the process and always encourage them to document. I'm not going to like specifically say, hey, we need to sue everybody um, or you need to quit your job. But I am looking at the day-to-day impact that it is having on their lives. Um, So we do lots of things like tapping. And if you're not familiar with tapping, it's something free that you can do. You can go on YouTube and Google like um, tapping for stress, tapping for anxiety. I do a lot of public speaking. So I do tapping anytime I, I give a speech. And basically it's acupuncture for the mind. And it really works well with racial trauma. Um, so you essentially go through with whatever negative is going on and then you reframe it with something positive um and i love that harvard actually did a study on it um looked at the brain scans of individuals who did talk therapy who did tapping who did acupuncture and the brain scans of those who did tapping improved way more i also do emdr um which is eye movement desensitization reprocessing. So through bilateral stimulation, I'm helping clients heal through their traumas. Um, General talk therapy, just implementing some of my main um, approaches like CBT, DBT, the general ones that we learn, but also adding an emphasis to really focus and heal from the racialized trauma Um, And I think one of the best ones is really somatic experiencing, which um, Resma Manikin, he has an amazing book on it, My Grandmother's Hands. And he really talks about like white body supremacy and how racial trauma is really in our bodies because it's been passed down generational, not only for black people, brown people, but white people. And so through healing from somatic experiencing, you're able to process through that trauma. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's been one of the biggest things that I implement in my um, practice to help people heal from racial trauma. Okay. You know, I've never heard of tapping, you know, so I'm definitely going to look that up. Oh yeah. I meant to do around (laughs) Tapping at the wellness event that you were at, um, I've done it at a couple of them. But yeah, tapping is so powerful. Yeah, definitely that up. I'm definitely, you know, I feel like this is, you know, one reason why I connect with other social workers and other is because there's so many tools out there, you know, and and you know, like we can get caught in like, you know, just doing the ones we know. But if we reach out and connect our network, you know, and and try to build, then you know we'd be that much better in our practice. You know, that's what I think anyway. For sure. And that's how I learned it. I actually learned tapping from one of my mentors um, who was doing my clinical supervision as I was observing her in session with one of her clients. She did tapping and it just had immediate impact on the client. And I was like, oh, what is this? I have to learn it. Mm -hmm. She's like, okay, go to the World Institute of Tapping. And it's free. Like 
all the resources are free. So it's not like an expensive training like EMDR, which costs several thousand dollars. Yeah. Um, it's, it's free. <laughs> I, I definitely like free. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> uh, so, you know, um, uh, last was it this May, last May or before that, it was like it was like the beginning of the year. You reached out, um, you know, for, you know, for me to, uh, to uh, you know, uh, speak at your, you know, at your panel. And and then, you know, from there, I kind of found out about all the work you do. You know, what I'm saying you do a lot in the community. You kind of do a lot, you know, like as, as far as like, you know, just building up your platform, you know, um, and seeing how you move, you know, say really motivated me to kind of, you know, uh, get my name out there and all that kind of stuff, you know. So what inspired you to kind of take the social work and not just like sit behind a desk and push paper, but really like, you know, um, write books, uh, you know, travel and, and, you know, host these awesome events in you know different cities and you know speak at ted talks and you know just you know just, i mean you know what i'm saying like just, you know what I'm saying like just like you know, yeah. you know what I'm really put yourself out there you know what I'm saying? like what inspired you to you know what I'm saying, to, you know what I'm saying, to do that so it wasn't always this way i mean the hustle is in me because my dad always from day one was always stressing like i'm gonna get you a, a building you could start your business here and i was like no no um so what happened was i was actually before i graduated i had a really great job as the director of um social services for a large healthcare facility so i was making good money i was traveling the world and but in that, I actually grew complacent. Mm. And I forgot that my initial motivation was to actually start a private practice. It wasn't to be behind a desk. It wasn't to be running a healthcare facility. But I had got caught up with the money that I was making and the role that I was in. Yeah. Um, and it was black owned, too. So I love that fact. It was the only black owned healthcare facility in the state of Washington. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, unfortunately, they sold and my whole world crashed. Because at that point, then I had to look for a job and I was making such good money. And then I have an MSW, which is one of the lowest paying um, fields. Mm-hmm. And so was when I was back in the workforce and trying to find a job, it was like a 20, 30,000 a year pay cut. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, I just bought a house. How am I going to be able to afford my mortgage? Yeah. Um, so at that point, that's when I was like, okay, you never wanted to do this from the beginning. So let's get back to what you wanted to do and start your practice. So it was really me not knowing how I was going to pay my mortgage, mm-hmm. not knowing <laughs> how I was going to pay my bills and taking a huge twenty, thirty thousand $30,000 a year pay cut that I started my business. And then I'm like, okay, I'm never going to have this situation happen to me to where a company sells. And I don't know how I can pay my bills. So I'm like, okay. Then I wrote a book. Um, I started speaking. I didn't, I didn't even know how lucrative speaking was. Um, So it all really just kind of circulated around me losing my job and not being able to find a job that matched what I was making at that place. Um, So that's where the hustle came from, but it was always in me because from day one, my dad, was always trying to help me start my business, but I was too comfortable. I was like, no, I'm good. I'm here. Like, I love my job, you know, but that job didn't love me. Yeah. That seems like most jobs, <laughs> you know, I just, uh, <laughs> right. I just uh, seen a tweet about the UPS uh, person that got killed and then UPS really kind of disregarded it in their response to it, you know? So like, and that was, that's kind of a, 
that's kind of a, you know, like to me that sums up like, you know, it's really about, you know, the bottom line and, you know, who's who who who's affected, you know, saying like, you know, because an employee can quit whatever, you know, saying, but like, you know, but the board members are mad or if like stakeholders are mad, then that's who they, you know, who they jump for. So, yeah, yeah, you're right. Those these jobs. Yeah, that was so foul. They, they yeah. sent that. They send him a GoFundMe. Yeah, that's ain't that messed up. This is a, <laughs> this is a company that can pay for so many, you know, so many expenses. And, and they still, can write it off. Yeah, tax like you could, you could help him. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, yeah it, it, you wouldn't even miss that, that money. Well, whatever. I don't want to. <laughs> they should have offered the benefits to begin with. So I do still work for a company. Like I mentioned, I do hospice therapy. So I saw, you know, I'm grinding. Gotta make sure this mortgage is paid. Yeah, I feel you. Um, but in working for a hospice, you know, they make sure like if something happens to us and the life care, all that, all that's covered. So UPS definitely needs to step up and do better. All companies really. Mm-hmm. And we as a people also have to recognize that these companies are not vested in us. And I had got like complacency kills, man. It really can. And I had got so blindsided because I was working for a black owned business. Like, you know, I love my people. My people's yeah. not going to do this. Like the culture. At the end of the day, <laughs> <laughs> you know, they had to do what was best for them and their family. And it was to sell the company. Yes. Yeah. So, um, so in, in your speaking, you know, um, like how do you like go about like, uh, you know, like getting engagements and staying in front of, you know, you know, the camera and the microphone and things like that, you know, like how's that hustle like, um, work? A lot of it really is word of mouth. So I have a strong presence in my community. I'm showing up to town hall meetings, community forums, um, people know me. There's not that many black therapists, but I, I make sure that people know me. Mm-hmm. So through word of mouth, anytime there's like a wellness event, people will recommend me. So that's been the best thing. Also, when I do speak in places, um, I guess I do a good job. So people yeah. are like, hey, well, you know, we love hearing you talk. So we want to have you here, X, Y, and Z. Um, and people in my community, like Erin Jones, she was one of the first black women um, to run for superintendent in the state of Washington. Mm-hmm. And she speaks all over the state of Washington at schools. And she always recommends me anytime they need a therapist. So just having people in the community who are influential, who think of me first. Um, uh, social media also plays a big role. So people uh, see me on LinkedIn or Instagram and they'll reach out to me. I've done a couple TV shows mm-hmm. um, also on the news a lot. So people, you know, if they watch the news and they see me, I've actually gotten some amazing emails that actually bring me to tears. Like I've never I've never seen a black therapist and I was just watching the news and you were on there and yada, yada, yada. They may yeah. not necessarily be wanting me for services, but just the fact that they see me on TV and then they reach out. And then I sometimes look for events myself as well. So, um, you know, check Eventbrite, Facebook. If I see something and it looks like I can add to it, I may reach out to the organizer. And if they've already got all their speakers booked, I'm like, hey, well, just keep me in mind for next year. Mm -hmm. And, you know, next year comes around, they'll reach out to me. There was one particular um, event actually next month. I had reached out to them. They didn't have any room on the lineup initially and then someone dropped out and then they called me like hey you know somebody dropped out so we would love to have you nice Mm -hmm. 
Yep. So really just building relationships, reaching out and making sure you're visible. I wasn't, when I first started, I didn't even have an Instagram page. Nobody knew that I was a therapist. I didn't want that out because I want people in my inbox telling me all their problems. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) I feel you. My business coach, she really encouraged me like, you know, you need to make an Instagram, you need to do this. And so we were going back and forth and eventually I did. And it's really helped my business tremendously. Nice. Yeah, I feel like... um... Yeah, I feel like that's one thing in 2020 that I need to work on is being visible in my community. Like, you know, I have a pretty, like, strong Instagram presence, you know, but... Yeah, your Instagram's popping. <laughs> but, 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 like... I'm trying to get on your level. <laughs> I mean, you know, I feel like that's... I feel like it's a lot of, a lot of kind of, like, you know, um, lightning struck and, like, luck, you know what I'm saying? Because I don't really have any, like... I don't really have, like, any kind of strategy that, you know, that I did. Except follow a lot of people. I... I like I did do that at first, but, but, uh, but like as far as my community goes, I don't be really leaving my house, you know? So like, I feel like in 2020, I need to like get out and like, you know, do more things and just be more visible, go to events and stuff, you know, because and, yeah, you have to get out because Instagram done shut down like five times this year. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you know? So, and then, you know, like you saying that, it's like, okay, yeah, you, you gotta, you gotta do more, you know what I'm saying? But you know, that's just, that's just part of the growth. So, 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 like, in, in speaking of things like that, you know what I'm saying, like, so are all of these, like, paid or, like, you know, some of them is, like, you know, for the low, but you just do it to kind of, like, you know, stay sharp? Um, When I first started speaking, I didn't know that speaking was a business. So I was just showing up, speaking, um, doing everything for free. And then my homegirl told me she had got paid, like, $10,000 for an event that I spoke at. I was like, what? They didn't pay me anything and you got paid $10,000? I was like, okay, I got to rethink this. And then I went to um, Lisa Nichols Speak to Make Millions um, conference. And that conference really changed my life. Um, And if you're a member of Black Therapist Rock, which you just really got to be in the Facebook group, they they give you a discount to attend the conference. So I went and then I really learned the business of speaking directly from Lisa Nichols. And if you don't know her, I mean, you got to look her up. She's a phenomenal speaker. I really try to model what I do after her. I'm not even on that level yet, but she's she's phenomenal. Yeah. She teaches you the art of storytelling, where to find speaking engagements, how to leverage it, how to um how to book your fee. And so at this point now, yeah, I do charge. There are some events every now and again that I will um show up for and come to for free. Like my friends had a couple events and they're like, Can you be on this panel? I'm like, Yeah, I'll show up. Or if it's something, you know, um, I would, I really want to go to and I really want to support, I will. Mm-hmm. But because I wear so many hats, you know, I'm working hospice full time. I'm running a business. I yeah. really cannot show up. And also, the money's there. Yeah. The money's there. And just like that event that I did free and my friend paid, got paid $10,000 for. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was a white woman. And so I feel like oftentimes these conferences, these symposiums, they want a black face there. They want a person of color there, but they don't want to pay us. Yeah. And that's not okay. And so if you want me there, you're definitely going to have to pay me. But if it's an event, you know, that's by us, for us, I'll think about it. I'll consider it. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, uh, my speaking engagements have been free, except when I first started and didn't understand the business. But 
that Lisa Nichols event changed my life. Yep, I just looked her up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I okay. have to send you her little training thing too. Like it is so dope. I'll, I'll email it to you. Okay, I appreciate that. Um, yeah. So the Worldwide Wellness Conference, you've done this um, in many cities. Uh, how did like, you know, how did that come about? So uh, speaking of conferences and all these events, um, I was always going to the different brunches, um, women empowerment events. And so I was noticing that at these events, everyone was expressing all this trauma mm -hmm. and there was no mental health therapist available except myself. So then I'm feeling obligated <laughs> to yeah. stand up and offer everyone support. And sometimes it's like, I really just wanted to go and attend a brunch and hang out and not have my therapist hat on. Mm -hmm. But I'm like, so many people are hurting and they're showing up to these events, but the people who need to be at these events, who need to be speaking to them aren't available. So I'm like, let me create it. And so it was really through attending all these different brunches and um, empowerment events that I was like, okay, let me kind of combine this brunch style. That's why I always have food. Mm. um <laughs> a panel because there was always some type of like panelists with you know different business owners and people um but there was no one there like I said associated with wellness I mean occasionally maybe there was a life coach or something yeah but it was just me in the audience and I'm like hot in my face <laughs> like depends do I have the energy today um but I'm like let me just go ahead and do it because the people need it yeah, that's true, you know, and I know a lot of, um, just, just like, you know, the few people that I knew that went to the event, you know, that I know, like in Portland, really appreciated the fact that you brought it to, you know, um, to, to Portland and then you, and you brought it to, um, what's that place called? I forgot what the place is called, but, but, you know, because of gentrification, you know what I'm saying? That's where, that's where we all are. And like, so I can feel like, you know, like. So I feel like that was like, you know, like you did your homework, you know what I'm saying? Like you like you know so like you knew when you came to Portland, you had to go to, you know, one sixty second and Stark, you know what I'm saying? Because that's where we're gonna be at. I mean now because that's you know, <laughs> because that's how it, that's that's how this you know, how, how things shook out. You know, but but yeah, you know, I appreciate that. And then like seeing the you know, like you know, like how you did it in San Diego and you know, like you, you just do it everywhere, you know, like that's just fresh because I feel like I feel like, you know, in in these major cities, you know, like like Seattle's and the and probably the Boston's and, you know, like just places where like we really don't be visible, you know. You know, we need somebody to come and just say, Hey, you know, you deserve to heal. You deserve to hear about your experiences. You deserve to share your experiences. You deserve to talk to other mental health therapists, you know, say because they have a lot of events that really aren't exclusively, you know, for our healing and and it's not like they have to be exclusively for our healing, in my opinion, but if they're not, then we get drowned out. You know what I'm saying? So so I think that's dope. Yeah, and so I always say everyone's welcome, but I'm like, you know, I'm going to have black clinicians because that's the focus, but definitely white people can learn from it. Asian people can learn from it. I've had all races, um, all religions, um, everything. So it's not just solely focused on the stereotypical black Christian. I've had a Muslim speaker in San Diego, Muhammad, 
who did amazing. And um, he brought out an extremely diverse crowd to San Diego. Mm. Um, and it was powerful. And I love that he came and he's working on his PhD. So he brought his his professors and his professors needed to hear the stories because they're the ones who are educating people and bringing up other future doctors into this world and the things that we talked about. And these are professors at his university who weren't aware of the things that we were talking about. So it opened up like a, a whole new door that can now be passed through the education system of the institution that he attends. Yeah. Yeah, we definitely, yeah. I feel like, um, um, I see a pattern of like, uh, institutions not really knowing how to, uh, how to do anti-racism curriculum. Or even like support, you know, like a person of color who's complaining about racism, you know. Most of the times they don't want to. They know how, they know who to call, they Mm -hmm. don't want to, or they're going to do it one time so that they can get their certificate and walk around with it like a badge of honor. I attended that diversity and equity training, so I'm good. No, (laughs) it's it's a lifelong process. That's true, you know. So, yeah. Um, So you mentioned you work in hospice. that seems like to me it seems like a tough like a kind of tough field to work in a, a tough you know just because when I was in grad school I thought I could do it but you know like after having like my daughter and you know, like something in my in my like emotional you know just I just can't really like deal with emotions now like I used to be able to you know so like I used to be pretty stone cold you know so I used to be able to like like hear like stories and be like yep all right you know that's you know like just not really like affect me too much you know what I'm saying? But I think hospitals right now, like for me, it would be hard to do. So like, how do you kind of manage doing that on a daily? And then like, what would you tell a grad student who was looking into getting in the hospice? You know, like what kind of advice would you give them on how to stay long-term, you know, for the long haul? Yeah. So I've actually worked in healthcare for over 10 years. And I, because I had that background and I've worked in hospitals and psychiatric facilities, I had always been surrounded around people who were dying. Um, like I said, I was the director of the healthcare facility. And so the healthcare facility that actually closed, we had a lot of hospice social workers coming in, which is how when, um, when I lost my job, they were one of the first people I reached out to, like, hey, y'all hiring? Because mm-hmm. uh, I ain't about to have a job. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I've just always been surrounded around it. That's the reason I'm in this field is because my grandmother died. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not for everybody. And I know I can't do peds. Like my colleagues, they've asked me to cover for them and do peds. And I'm like, no, I will not see a dying baby. I won't see a dying child at all. Yeah. I already have an extremely young population because of the zip codes that I serve, which is predominantly people of color. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately we're dying at very young ages, which is why my Ted talk was on dying while black. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, I get like 29 year olds, 30 year olds on my caseload, but anyone younger than that, I tell them, no, I can't put myself through that mentally. Yeah. And you have to know your limits. Mm -hmm. Um, One of my favorite books is Tuesdays with Maury. And if you haven't read it, essentially a journalist spends every Tuesday with this guy, Maury, who has ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, and he's dying. And he really just tells you all these beautiful stories about life and how he's come to terms with the end of it. And that's my journey with hospice. It's sad, but I also have 
so many beautiful experiences of those. Like I hear people who are like, you know, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to meet Jesus. or I'm ready to see whatever it is. Even if the light just turns off, I'm good. (laughs) Like I'm okay with it. I've lived a fulfilling life. And then I also get the people who are 30 years old and, you know, they want to get married. They want to do X, Y, and Z. They have so much life to live. And now they're at the end of the road. And so those moments are definitely challenging and it really compels me to live my life in a way um, that I know that I'm, you know, if I die tomorrow, I would be okay. Like I haven't done everything I wanted to do, yeah. but I know I've at least impacted, you know, a couple thousand people mm-hmm. at least. So I'll be good. I mean, Lord, give me some more time. We ain't speaking that into existence. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it's really just knowing your limits and to a grad school, I would say do multiple interns. Unfortunately for me, I did CTAP. So my internship was limited to the um, children's administration. Yeah. So I didn't get a lot of exposure, but I actually worked a lot of places. Yeah. <laughs> so in that aspect, it was good because it was paid. So I worked in prisons. I worked in psychiatric facilities, group homes, shelters. I was everywhere. I exposed myself to so many different avenues because I thought I knew what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. Um, My initial goal going in was, oh, I'm going to be a a child psychologist. I'm going to work with kids. And now I work with millennials and the elderly. So I don't see kids at all. Yeah. And I would say just give yourself grace to change. Like, don't be so set in one way. And I did start working with children and it was so hard. Like I said, I did my internship with the children's administration. So I was working at the child advocacy center not getting paid, working with children who've been sexually abused and been through the most amount, the most immense amount of trauma. Many of them were homeless and I wanted to take them all home. And then I had difficulties like living in my own house because I felt bad or like I was too privileged. Like, well, this child that I was just worked with doesn't even have a place to sleep, but I'm going home to this bed that I'm not even feeling comfortable sleeping in. So yeah. it was bad to the point that I'm not even okay living in my house and you can't work that way. Yeah. <laughs> so I feel you. Uh, it, it wasn't the right path for me. So unfortunately, you know, I did the full internship um, my whole time, but I didn't end up actually working in that field. But I have people who I went to school with who are still there. They love it. Mm-hmm. And I graduated in what, 2013. And so they're still working there. Um, that's their path. And, but it wasn't my path. So just knowing that things change and you should really expose yourself to different avenues. And it's okay to do multiple things. And like everyone's going to tell you, you got to have a niche. You got to do this. This has to be your one thing. I have multiple things, multiple niches. <laughs> yeah. I'm doing hospice, private practice, speaking, racial trauma, trauma, and it's okay. Yeah. I'm not going to limit myself to one thing. Yeah, you, you ain't got to, you know. <laughs> yeah. You know. But they're going to tell you you do, and that's because that's what they did and that's what worked for them. Yeah. And so they feel comfortable doing that. Okay, yeah, that's real. That's definitely real. So, um, so you know, built in building your platform and building your name out there, um, you know, 
I see like you know your network grows. You know, like you reach a lot of people. I was uh, I followed Doctor Jess on Instagram, and then I seen you was on a live with her. You know, I was like, okay, damn. You know, so there we go. And then Doctor um, Joy Joy DeGrew, um, You know, I was kind of fumbling through like uh, I think it was your page, and I seen you and you and her. And um, I didn't know she was from Portland until recently, or not from yeah, Portland. Yeah, but... a lot of people don't. It's yeah, crazy. yeah, because um. There's a program I'm in called SEI, and uh-huh. she was one of, like, the first staff. <laughs> you oh, know? wow. Yeah, and I was like, damn, like, I just found that out. But so, like, yeah, so how do you, like, build this network and, you know, like, you know, to touch, like, you know, just different avenues and just get, you know, all these vast opportunities and things like that? Um, so when it comes to the two names that you just mentioned, as far as Dr. Joy DeGruy, I read her book, Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome, and my whole life changed. And so I looked her up and I realized she was in Portland. I'm like, oh, that's just two hours away. Mm-hmm. So I sent her an email, reached out to her. Um, she actually was having an event in Seattle. So I ended up linking up with her and really just kind of listening to her, learning from her, working under her. She um, has some courses around racial trauma. I actually spoke and opened, like, I guess I can't really say I'm the opener because there was multiple speakers who opened before her. She was the big keynote. You, you, you opened this school. You opened. You opened. <laughs> you know, yes. Kinda <laughs> and there's a, um, some other events. She, she actually... All paid, by the way. Hey. Um, so, yeah, that really that's really how that relationship started was me literally just looking her up, emailing her, finding out that she was in close proximity. And even if she was in London, I still would have reached out and found, found my way. Yeah. <laughs> some type of way. And then as far as Dr. Jess, um, I didn't know too much about her. I don't have cable. I stream everything. Hey, I feel you. <laughs> I found out later she had a show um, with Charlemagne, which was dope on VH1. But she was looking for someone who specialized in grief. And so um, another therapist, Marlene Francois, she's like, oh, uh, you should talk to Dr. Jess because she's doing something on grief. And I was like, okay, not really sure who that person is. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but she plugged us and we connected. And yeah, so that's really where that relationship started. And we've just kind of been cool. She, you know, um, when I'm in New York, definitely going to have to hang out. And I know she comes to Seattle every now and again, but mm-hmm. I love the work that she's doing and the platform that she's built. And she works closely with Beyonce and has like the Be Well. Yeah. So that, that's dope. I'm extremely proud of her. So, you know, and Beyonce, for real. Her, yeah, <laughs> her say like she's proud of my work and she sees me. It's just really some black girl magic and just knowing that we can both support one another and there's no like um there's scarcity mindset. There's not enough room for me at the table. Like we can both uplift one another. Yeah. Yeah, that's dope. Yes, okay. So yeah. So yeah, most of my relationships have really just kind of been someone introducing me or me reaching out directly. Um, like I mentioned, Rusma and his book, My Grandmother's Hands, you know, I hit him up on Facebook and we really just connected. And th- then I started studying somatic experiencing because that's one of the best ways to really heal from racialized trauma. Mm-hmm. And with the power of social media, we can really connect with people 
um a lot more easier than we could in the past so yeah that yeah, yeah that's real that is true social media kind of brings everybody together you know i i just get so intimidated to like like how you said you emailed you know uh, I was like, shit. I would, I think like, but like, I always think like, well, why would they want to talk to me? I gotta figure. I gotta really get over that. <laughs> and the worst thing, they ignore your email or they don't respond. They say they're too busy. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. That's that's a good point. A good I, I slid in your DMs and asked you to be a part of the panel. That's true. Um, so many people had recommended you when I was looking for black therapists. Like everyone's got to talk to the hip hop social worker, hip hop social worker. I'm like okay. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, okay, yeah, well, I guess yeah, that's a good point, you know, that is a good point. So, one thing I do see, or many things that you do, but one that I want to talk about is how you set boundaries with your friends, and, like, how you tell them, all right, you know, therapy is is a certain rate, I can't really help you with this, because this is how I make my money, you know, so, how, um like, how important is that, you know, like in your practice, like, you know, I really set that fine boundary, like, hey, you can text me for stuff, but uh, after a certain, after a certain number of texts, it's $25 or whatever, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. Boundaries are key, but I'm going to tell you right now, my best friend does not care all the time. She probably owes me a million dollars for all the, all the free therapy. And she jokes and she thinks I'm playing, but I'm a comfort. Yeah. <laughs> One of these days. That invoice. Yeah. But mainly I have to set my boundaries with family. I don't have a lot of friends who really like my friends get it and they understand because they are in professions that um, they need boundaries too. like some of my good one of my good friends. She's an attorney. So I'm pretty sure people are hitting her up all the time for free legal advice. And it's a business. <laughs> Law school is not cheap. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so because of the work that my friends do, a lot of them are in the healthcare um, or just other industries. A lot of them are entertainers. So it's like, oh, um, what am I speaking of Beyonce? One of my best friends who I just went to Israel with, she dances for Beyonce. Nice. So it'll be like, oh, plug me to this person or that. So they get it and they don't want to, you know, overstress. Yeah. Um. But my family, now that's, <laughs> that's something where I really have to lay it down. Like, you know, I just want to be sister, auntie, cousin, niece. I can't be your therapist. I'm going to send you these resources and this is who you can go to. Um, because when I come home, I just want to wind down. Sometimes I don't even want to talk on the phone because I've been talking all day. Mm -hmm. um, especially working with hospice and working with the dying. I need to come into an environment that's peaceful and calming so I can't have a lot of stress. And my sister gets it. She's really respectful in where there may be something traumatic going on in the family. And she's like, okay, I know. Let me let me ask Ashley, Can are you in a space to where you can receive this? And that's one of the best things you can do is you can ask somebody, you know, are they okay to receive something before you lay all this traumatic information on them? Ask them, you know, how are you? Check in. Um, but some of my cousins, aunties, Karen, yeah. <laughs> and it'll just be me, honestly, ignoring phone calls, mm -hmm. ignoring texts until I can get to them. Um, you may see that it's red and that's okay. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I, I need break and I need a mental space. Um, so I'm really straight up with them vocally. Um, 
and either they'll care and they'll respect it or they'll continue to message and I'll continue to, you know, keep it on silent until I can get to a space and actually respond. But for the most part, I'm blessed in that my friends and family are in healthcare. My mom's a registered nurse, so Mm -hmm. she gets it. My mom has worked in psychiatric facilities for a long time. Um, And so she sees the psych aspect actually probably more so than me (laughs) because I'm not in that arena anymore. My Mm -hmm. mom's worked in prisons and, you know, when I was working in prison, she got it and she knew what it was like to go into the prison. Yeah. Um, So I think having a mom that understands and my dad, he's a businessman. He, he's very laissez-faire. He doesn't want to do any stress. So everything is fun and light when I'm around my dad. Nice. Yeah, my dad's not going to ask me all the details about the people who are dying. He's going to talk about something fun and light, crack a couple jokes. Yeah. That's just who he is. That's what's up. Yeah, we need, I feel like, you know, that's a good balance to have. And, you know, um, and let me shout out to the nurses and psychiatric units. Um, I worked at a psychiatric unit for two months. And I was like, mm, I don't know, <laughs> like, I, like hospitals. I don't know. That just wasn't really my thing. Um, at least not that one. But the, <laughs> you know, but the nurses there was holding it down, and they, you know, they kind of ran the show and they dealt with a lot. And so I want shout, shout shout out the nurses in psychiatry. They like, in they really care. do. They do mm-hmm. a lot, and they actually get assaulted the most. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yep. My mom has told me some horror stories, and I've seen it myself because I, was, I used to work at Western State, which is um, one of the main psychiatric facilities in the world. And there's so much history with Western State. I don't know if you're familiar, but they actually perfected lobotomies there. Damn. And just the land that it's on, like it used to be um, native, a native reservation, and then it was military, um, what do you call it, like the army, yeah. army land. Yeah. Then they built a psychiatric <coughs> facility. Stephen King, um, one, a couple of Stephen King's movies were actually there. So there's just so much history with that place. And it can be a really scary, scary place to work. Um, but yeah, when my mom found out I was working there, she didn't even want me to work there. Cause she had worked there. She's like, don't do it. Yeah, <laughs> I, feel, <laughs> but, I don't want to um, work there. That sounds terrible. and I was like I want to work there and I learned so much just about um really severe mental illness and I needed that background for me I I think personally I mean everybody doesn't need to Mm -hmm. and I was blessed that I was never attacked or assaulted I was accidentally kicked one day yeah um and the person who did it was so remorseful they were actually trying to kick somebody else me yeah um but other than that you know i was never hurt the whole time i was working there mm, yeah okay i was i'm glad but this that whole background sound like somewhere i'm like no nah, i'm cool on that one <laughs> yeah a lot of people can't a lot of people can't handle it i'm weird that way and i love that stuff yeah um but literally right when i got out um there was a man who brought who like chopped up a body there Shit. So <laughs> you you could Google it. It's like yeah. Western State. <laughs> Is this in Seattle area or like Washington? It's in La- yeah, it's in Lakewood, like forty five minutes past Seattle. Okay. Um, but people send patients there from all over the world because it's one of the best psychiatric facilities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they do house the worst offenders. Yeah. 
Yeah, because they because they have the resources to try to. <laughs> yeah. Shit. So like the person who chopped up the body, you know, they they bring those type of people there. Yeah. Mm. Well. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> shit. So um, <laughs> uh, today we learned that uh you know the young rapper uh Juice World well was he really a rapper he was. You know, entertainer. He had died, age of twenty one. <laughs> oh, you're not gonna you give know. him the rapper crash. Well, I mean, you know, he was, he, you know, he might not want to be called a rapper. You know, sometimes they're like, well, you know, I'm an entertainer, not a rapper, because I rap, I sing, I, you know, I do, I dance, I, you know, so. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, so, entertainer. You know, so, uh, but he died today. Uh, um, you know, he had a seizure, and I know your, um, you know, your, what well, one of your platforms is dying while black. You know, so yes. So, um, do you want to speak on, you know, like on that, you know, like on that topic? Yeah. So this is actually what I gave my TED talk on, and I've given quite a few talks just on dying while black. And so there's so many layers to it, but unfortunately, black people's lifespan is literally cut by like twenty, thirty years than that of our white counterparts. Mm-hmm. Um typically from things like chronic illness, from chronic heart failure, heart attacks, high blood pressure, strokes. John Singleton, he died from a stroke. He was 51. Yeah. The leading cause for strokes is high blood pressure. The leading cause for high blood pressure is stress. That man was stressed out. Mm -hmm. My grandmother was 62. She died from a stroke, the same exact thing. Um, My uncle, he was 54. He just died from a heart attack. Um, my cousin, 34, like I can go down the list and this is just my family that I'm talking about. Yeah. Not even my hospice caseload, not even the greater population. Um, but what it is, is it's really racial trauma. Like mm. being black is killing us. Yeah. Um, and so even take out the oppressive systems, like the healthcare system, we're not getting the healthcare that we need. My aunt recently passed, um, Uh, Well, not recently, I guess it's been almost two years now, but she was poor. She was on Medicaid. She didn't get the treatment that she needed because she was poor and black. So they looked at her a certain type of way. And then when she involved my mom in her care, who's a registered nurse, um, it was too late at that point. But my mom started pointing out all the different things that they didn't do. Um, different treatments that they could have tried. Um, and they didn't offer that to her because she didn't have the education, which me, I have a master's degree yeah. and I wouldn't have even known those things. My mom being a nurse, she knows, and we shouldn't have to have a, a nurse come with us everywhere. Um, but mm. unfortunately she ended up dying. She was 52. Yeah. And so it's because of the way the healthcare system treats us, which is why black men, women are dying in childbirth. Um, all these other things like the we're, we're dying from strokes because we're so stressed out. And then we go to the healthcare system and we're treated like we're just drug seeking or our symptoms aren't what they actually are. Um, there's a whole book on it, Medical Apartheid. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the things that they've done to us in the healthcare system and are still doing it. And one of the worst things, too, that I see working in hospice that really just breaks my heart is they will because they don't want to treat you they'll ask you do you want to be comfortable everybody wants to be comfortable so what does that mean like like in death do you want to be comfortable no like so here i I guess i'll I'll let me basically they'll ask you like what are your goals is it to be comfortable and then 
everybody's going to say yes. They want to be comfortable. And then when you say that, they'll say, well, you should go on hospice because hospice will help you be comfortable. So they don't even give these people a fighting chance. They automatically refer them for hospice care. Then they come to me and they're like, oh, well, I don't get to go to the doctor. I don't get to do this treatment. And you don't because when you're on hospice, you're saying you just want to be comfortable. Yeah. You don't want to do any aggressive treatments. And they're not explaining that to the people. They're just asking, do you want to be comfortable? And so I'm getting these people who are 30 years old, 50, 50 years old, 49 years old, being placed on a hospice, end of life care and told, we're not going to do any aggressive treatments because guess what? You have Medicaid. So we're not about to run up this expensive bill, trying all these treatments on you. We're just going to send you over to hospice and make you comfortable. Yeah. And so that's what ha- what's happening. And then I'm having to do all this education because my patients are confused. And then when people hear the word hospice, they automatically think I'm dying. Mm-hmm. Um which sometimes that is the case, but then there's also been the case where you could actually get this treatment. You could have done this, or you still can. You can get off hospice and you can try this, but they weren't given that education. Yeah. And And so it's so effed up that it's happening, and I'm always the one that's having to explain it to them and educate my patients and tell them their options and ask them, like, Is this really what you want? Because you're 49 years old. So no judgment. If you're ready to go, I mean, this world is effed up. I'm (laughs) I'm ready to go with you. Jesus, Jesus, come on. But um, if you want to still live, there's things that you can do. You can't do it on hospice. So you need to come off. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks for breaking that down. Um, When you spoke about, um, you know, just how we, you know, Black people are just, you know, just being, just being black is killing us. I was uh, thinking, you know, just kind of um, when I was in college, you know, there was this girl that I knew. She was white, and uh, her first funeral she went to, she was like, well, when she was in college, she was nineteen. And I was like, damn, I've been going yeah. to funerals since I was like five, you know. So just, just Same to kind of, <laughs> just to kind of, par- you know, just the kind of parallels of, you know, just how 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 life is looked at, the, the, the expectancy and. All that it's stuff. so normalized for us from all aspects, not even chronic illness, but murder. I mean, we've got the Nipsey hustles. That's so many black people's daily realities. I've gone to so many funerals of people who are victims of gun violence and it's mm-hmm. terrible. So it's like if our health isn't killing us, if the system isn't killing us, we're killing us. And it's all really a result of racism. Because honestly, if the person, the perpetrator who essentially um, killed Nipsey Hussle, he was found checking himself into a psychiatric facility. Mm -hmm. So had he have been given the resources to actually heal from his rage and understand his trauma, he may not have actually pulled the trigger and then killed, you know, Nipsey Hussle. And he could still be living today had Mm -hmm. he have actually gotten what he needed. Yeah. And that's a trip because, you know, like that's just kind of how how one person not getting what they need affects the community and how it causes community trauma, you know? So, Right. And he was in and out of the psychiatric facility. So they clearly weren't helping that man. And oftentimes you don't, I, I worked in psychiatric facilities. So my role really was to, 
to do groups. I couldn't do individual therapy. There was no time for that. Yeah. So I'm doing group therapy for people who are severely psychotic, like 20 people in a room trying mm. to manage everybody, trying to have them process these CBT exercises. Let's do these DBT skills. Um, and they're hallucinating. So it's really you're just going there. You're going to groups. You're getting medicated. And then we're putting you back into the community. And all the I've worked in three different psychiatric facilities and there's never been time to do one to one therapy. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, because for like in those kind of facilities everybody's in crisis. You know. Yeah. So and and the, and the group therapy with that amount of psychosis, mm. it, it it really doesn't work. It's really just a check in the box so that we can appease the court systems yeah. and so that we can appease the county that's paying paying us and the state and the federal dollars that we're getting so that we can say we're holding these groups. But and then we're just going to get you medicated and hope that you take your meds when you're out in the community and give you some referrals mm -hmm. yeah, and not follow up. Like, I would never hear from the people after. I mean, there was no capacity in my role to really make follow-up calls like that. Yeah. But then I would see them a couple weeks later. Yeah. Like, uh, being, like, readmitted or something. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like um, there's, like, so many things that like, when it comes to, like, court commits and all that kind of stuff is, like, my philosophy is, like, you know, if you're not into the group or into the treatment, me sitting here talking to you is, like, a waste of time because you're not you're not bought into it. You know, but because, like you said, you know, people want, you know, boxes checked and, um, you know, um, just are, you know, like you, you got to appease the money, uh, you know, provider. You're going to do it, but it's like you ain't really, you know what I'm saying? Like you're not really into it. So, like, you know, why? You know, so why waste our time? You know, that's how I, that's how I feel anyway. Yeah. And they weren't a lot of them aren't even on a mental level to be into it, which is why they landed up being there in the first place. What they everyone really needs is individualized care. But they get, you know, like five, ten minutes with the psychiatrist, if that. Mm -hmm. And from that short meeting, they're determining their medications. And from my interaction with them in group therapy and the notes that I provide, that's all leading up to their treatment plan and the care that they're receiving. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so, there are people who are engaged um, who may not have such severe psychosis who definitely are learning and processing the information, especially coming from a black woman, like people uh, who be, you know, like, Hey, I've never seen a black therapist, so I'm going to be engaged. I'm going to show up. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, this is a, it's like a leprechaun. Oh, right. <laughs> you never know when they're gonna leave. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what do you do? To, what do you do to take care of yourself and all the things that you are involved in? You know, how do you stay motivated to wake up and just keep going? I write and I travel. I just got back from Israel, Jordan, Barcelona. Um, so yeah, I do quite a bit of traveling throughout the year and that really keeps me sane and just spending time with my family, my loved ones, um, going to comedy shows. I love to laugh. I actually just went to this event um, this Friday, Healing with Humor, and it was comedy all associated with healing mm -hmm. um, in a fun comedic way. I mean, Lil Duvall was there, D.L. Hughley, um, Joe Torrey, a, a ton of people. Um, and it was just really fun. Actually, I used to go to Nate Jackson's comedy club every Thursday when I lived closer to Tacoma. And that was kind of my outlet to really just laugh. Yeah. Um, 
but for the most part, just spending time with friends and family. And like I said, my family gets it, my friends get it, um, and having a space to process when I need to. So I'm a part of lots of like clinician groups, clinician of color groups. So if I have a tough case, I, I will need a process. Yeah. And also working in hospice, they really provide that when there's families that we get extremely close with and it's hard. Or um, for me, my team, a couple months ago, we had maybe like 11 patients die all in the same week, which mm. is rare that your whole caseload dies like that. Yeah. So they put together like this whole meeting and I work for a Catholic organization. So they like prayed and... Um, they tell you like when you work there, if you're not into prayer or you're not Catholic, like I'm not Catholic, but um, I do like the prayer aspect. So I yeah. thought that was really cool. And then, you know, sometimes when we have patients who do death with dignity, because a lot of us don't agree with that. I personally um, don't agree with death with dignity, uh, but I have to support my patients when they do it. Yeah. And they and because they know that that's such a hard topic that has so many like um conflicting views around it and because we are a catholic agency um and it, it's against what catholics believe mm -hmm. but they still you know they still support it so they'll come and they'll like make sure we're okay and we're not having a hard time um like I, at one point i was having a hard time because i had a pastor who was getting ready to do it yeah. and so i was like you know, I can't tell him not to do it, but I'm just like, oh, my gosh, I don't want him to do it. Um, mm -hmm. He actually ended up dying before he got to the point to do it. So I was grateful in that moment. Um, but he was tired. You know, he's like, I'm ready to go. His death process was really prolonged. So, yeah. Um, so I love that I get help with my self-care in that aspect from my company and from my family and my travels. Okay. And death with dignity, that's like uh, assisted uh, suicide. Yeah. Okay. They don't like that word, but that's what I believe it yeah. is. And so that's why I said I don't really agree with it. That's yeah. What, um, well, you know, just for like, you know, just, just put it in layman's terms, you know, just, <laughs> you know. Okay. Well, I will. Thanks for sharing yeah, that. Yeah, I was like, don't call it suicide. I'm like, well, it kind of is. Yeah, a little uh, bit, you know. <laughs> kind of, you know. Well, I appreciate you for sharing your time uh you know with with me and everybody who's going to listen to this uh is there anything you want to go ahead and plug you know let people know where they can find you at um you can find me on instagram at therapy with ash facebook that's the only social media that i have oh um linkedin ashley mcgurt i don't have any events going on because like i said i just got back from traveling and I'm chilling the rest of the year. <laughs> so mm, yes, uh, hit me yes. up in 2020 because I'm really not doing much the rest of this year. Okay. All right. Well, like I said, I appreciate you and, uh, you know, keep grinding, keep, keep helping people heal across the world. You know, uh, I know Seattle, the community of Seattle, I've, I know, like, I just feel like, they support you. They need you. You know, um, I don't really go up there a lot, but, uh, but, you know, just like seeing the stuff you post and you showing up and speaking about the gun violence and stuff, that's big, that's major, and uh, keep doing it, you know. Likewise, and whenever you're out here, hit me, or if I'm in Portland, you know. The yep. Connect hey. for sure. <laughs> thanks. So thanks for having me. No problem. And, uh, yeah, I'll speak to you later. All right. Bye. Bye.